Welcome to A Manner of Speaking, a podcast about the world of business law. I'm Neil Schwartz, a business law lawyer at the full-service law firm Man Lawyers in Ottawa, Ontario. Thanks for joining me today. Let's get started. Hello and good morning. Welcome to Man Lawyers Business Law Podcast. And joining me today is Cody Sorensen. Cody is the Director of Mergers and Acquisitions at Welch Capital Partners, headquartered here in beautiful Ottawa, Ontario. Cody joined Welch in 2016 following regional office and banking roles at Royal Bank. And before becoming a banker, Cody graduated from the University of Guelph with a Bachelor of Economics and obtained his MBA from the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. But uh, don't be fooled. Cody is not just a banker or a a deal runner for Welch. Cody has a not-so-secret second life. With a passion for high performance, Cody spent seven years competing as a member of the national Canadian national bobsled team and captained the team at the Sochi Olympics in 2014. In 2010, he was named the Ontario Male Athlete of the Year. Very prestigious. And after an eight-year retirement, Cody returned to sport to compete in the 2022 Olympic Games in Beijing, finishing ninth overall in the Olympic four-man bobsled final. He is active in the community, sits on the board of directors for Bobsled Canada Skeleton, and devotes a lot of time to volunteering with several local charities. In addition, Cody is a stand-up guy, and I'm very pleased to have him join me today. Welcome, Cody. Thanks, Neil. What a great intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it kind of sad? I'm... Uh... I had this amazing life as a bobsled athlete, and now I'm in a cubicle for 12 hours a day. It hurts the soul a little bit. Yeah, we definitely want to open that wound <laughs> later on in the in the program, and so let's park that one for the moment. But uh, let's try to keep things a little bit optimistic uh, <laughs> off the top. So, Cody, hopefully um, we can chat a little bit today about your role at Welch and your function as a sort of an M&A specialist and broker yep. and give our listeners a sense of sort of the value that you bring to transactions and the perspective that you've gained over the years in in all the deals that you've been participating in. So I guess just to kick it off the top, maybe you can just help you know everyone understand what the role of of a broker is in the M&A context. Sure. And actually it's a it's a tough question to answer sometimes. What you know people always ask me what is what does my day-to-day look like? What do you guys do as, as M&A advisors, as investment bankers, as, as brokers? And it's hard to answer largely because the, the role is different every day. At a high level, uh, we are hired by our clients to help them with the process to sell their company. If we're on a sell-side engagement, if it's a buy-side engagement, of course, we are hired by that client to help them uh, work through or walk through the process of acquiring a business. And, and like I said, the reason why I think that's a, a difficult role to describe is sometimes we uh, we get brought in two years before a company is ready to sell. We'll help them prepare the financial statements. We'll help them get organized, help them get due diligence ready, help them kind of uh, get positioned so that we can extract the most value out of uh, out of a transaction. And value isn't always uh, just price, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in other contexts, sometimes we get hired just in the the final weeks uh, before the closing of a transaction, if a client or a prospect uh, is looking for some help, for example, with working capital negotiations or how to set that target as part of a, a purchase agreement. So I think that's what excites me about the role is that it is uh, it is very different on a, on a daily basis, the types of engagements and clients that we work with. But it's also what makes it very difficult, right? We're, we're not doing the same thing every, every day. Um, so there's some 
efficiencies that you can't really build up, I guess, in, in that context. But, um, but yeah, I've, I've been in this role for six years. You alluded to it, Neil, that I was with RBC before that. But um, I can tell you there's nothing in my life that brings the same amount of adrenaline as my my days in bobsleigh did. But this is probably <laughs> as, as, as close as I can get to it in a professional capacity. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, listen, being a professional is thrilling most days of the week. We know this. Being yeah. in the office is an adrenaline rush, but I'm sure, you know, the bobsled track does provide just a little bit more on that front. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just in terms of what you were saying, in terms of being on either side of a transaction, sure. sell side or buy side, is it more typical to be engaged on one or the other in your experience in the last six years? Have you tended to be on the sell side more than the other, for example? Yeah, I, I would say 75% plus uh, of our mandates are sell side engagements. Okay. A big part of the reason for that is that it's, you know, there's a, a lot of clients or individuals or high net worth uh, individuals that have the these kind of romanticized ideas about buying a business or buying a company. And so we have to be very careful with the buy side engagements that we uh, that we take on, mm-hmm. uh, largely in the context that, you know, we want to ensure that you know, these clients have the capacity, the willingness and the, you know, the guts to get a deal done and to write the check. So in in kind of previous experience, uh, sometimes the, you know, these buy side engagements can become a bit of a tire kicking exercise for for a couple of years. So we're, we're very, I guess, reluctant to take on uh, just anyone on the buy side. We generally only work with corporate groups or companies that we know have, have done deals uh, in the past. So Exactly to your point, the majority of our deals would be on the sell side. Yeah, of course, makes sense. So we're coming out of a couple interesting years uh, on the heels of, I would like to say the heels of the pandemic. I'm you know, optimistic that we're, we're through it and we won't be going back. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what kind of deal trends have emerged in the last little while? I think to some degree, the pandemic affected different yeah. sectors in different ways. And certainly some some industries were hit hard and and closed and subject to restrictions and really just kind of went into survival mode. But, you know, on the flip side, there were a lot of companies that were able to, you know, build up some cash reserves yeah. and looked at the pandemic as an opportunity to go acquire or expand or grow. And I'm just wondering, you know, from your seat, what kind of trends emerged over the last couple of years in the MA space? Sure. And I mean, maybe just for some additional context, like we, we're, we're obviously tracking the market and, and keeping an eye on kind of, uh, you know, Canadian trends, North American trends in the MA space, but we can do very well in our, in our firm here by doing six to eight deals a year. Right. So, Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that, that would be difficult to identify any type of trend with, you know, that few of deals. But what I can say is that when I got hired with Welch in 2016, a big part of the motivation to, to bring in an, an associate at that time was to, to be prepared for this large wave of this, you know, this transfer of wealth that uh, everyone's been talking about for a decade. These baby boomers retiring or selling their businesses and exiting. And that was in 2016. But I, I can say, uh, between 2016 and today, the large majority of the deals that we've done has not been these baby boomers retiring. And I think, Neil, to your point, we were very fortunate or we are very fortunate uh, to deal with clients that are largely kind of business to business. We generally don't work with, you know, kind of smaller retail shops or or those types of companies that would have had a, you know, a much larger impact uh, due to COVID. So a lot right. of our clients have actually done very well, uh, to your point, throughout uh, kind of the COVID period. 
And I think finally, you know, these baby boomers waited a couple extra years after the economic crash in 2008, 2009. And uh, they finally rebuilt some value in their, in their companies. And now they're just tired. That's the, <laughs> that is the trend that we are hearing. And, and finally, we're starting to see some, I would say, consistency in the, um, in the calls that we're getting and the conversations that we're having that this, this transfer of wealth, you know, this large, uh, shift from baby boomers to you know to sell their businesses to to shift their assets to their to their kids or to third parties is finally starting to happen. So it's also my prediction. I think for the next couple of years, that's what will be driving most of the M and A work for uh, for our firm. Right, that makes sense. I was at a, a conference yesterday, and one of the major topics being discussed was the talent shortage in yep. in so many industries. And one of the big reasons that the panel we're pointing to was sort of the accelerated retirement pace for business owners and employees that were sort of approaching retirement age, but maybe not quite there, but having endured the last couple of years, just have more fatigue than they expected yeah. and decided that the time was right and life was too short and it was time to make a move. So it sounds like that's coming through in, in the deal trends as well. Yeah. And we, and we have so many clients too that, um, or, or even prospects that we're talking to that had just assumed that their kids would take over the business, right? That that was their that was their exit plan. That was their transition plan. Only to find out that uh, for whatever reason that that doesn't seem to be the motivation for most um, most family businesses these days. The kids do not want to take over the family business. Their interests are are elsewhere. So that obviously uh, is helpful for us because that drives the need to sell to a third party if, if at all. So those are the types of calls that we're getting these days is from these, these, these older uh, business owners in that context. That must be interesting though, when you've got a business owner that had a succession plan in mind that mm-hmm. didn't pan and now they're facing the prospect of having to take their life's work and put it into the hands of a third party, strange to them in the context of a deal. Are there underlying emotional concerns and fear that you need to sort of work through as a broker in those contexts? I think the, well, for sure. I think that's kind of an, an overarching kind of issue, right? Is your, you know, these, these individuals are selling their, their life's work, right? Their, their child, right? To a, to a third party. Um, and it's a, it's a very difficult process regardless of the, you know, the value that they're getting or the, or the price tag that they might be getting as, as, uh, as part of the deal. But I think what's, What's worse is that you, I guess with any asset, you, you never want to sell an asset when you have to, right? Yeah. And so when there's, you know, when there has, has been no succession planning done and oftentimes it's sad, but we'll get calls because there's been some kind of a catalyst, right? And whether it's a health problem or you've lost a significant customer or there's, you know, the economic trend, you know, a lot of recession talks these days too. These are, mm-hmm. these are all times when it, it's the least favorable time to, to sell your business. So if you, if you haven't had those conversations, if you haven't prepared, if you haven't put the pieces together, like I said, with, with any asset, you're not going to get the most value out of it if you're forced to sell it. Um, and that's the issue that we're seeing more and more. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I imagine that leads to a lot of conversations, you know, in terms of addressing your clients' interests and what they're really looking for from a, you know, a good deal, like you said earlier on, it's not always just a financial solution. Yeah. It's finding the right party or person or personality to take over, which kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to ping you on in terms of communication. I think you may or may not agree, but it, as a professional advisor, often the main critique we get is 
we under communicate with clients or we don't manage okay. expectations. And that is something that I know you work hard to overcome. And I, I know I do as well. When you're working with financial advisors and legal advisors, you kind of come to the table as a deal team. And, you know, I, from, from the legal perspective, I look at someone like you, that's sort of quarterbacking the deal as somebody that's got a primary role in managing the client's expectations taking a lead on understanding the business issues and obviously, you know, a lot of the financial metrics that go in. How do the brokers perceive and, you know, think about legal advisors in the context of a transaction? Yeah. So, and you kind of alluded to it, like the, maybe that would have been a better part of my kind of role description, but we really do see ourselves as the, as a quarterback for these, for these transactions where, you know, beyond managing the the conversations, I think a, a large part of our role is, is helping to provide context to the partners, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, for example, if you're receiving a uh, or preparing a purchase agreement for the first time and you haven't been part of the conversations with the buyers and sellers, it's it's very easy to put something in there that uh, might offend someone just based on the the previous discussions that were had. I think I think it goes both ways though. Too, we we really enjoy working with professionals uh, and. I think you do a good job at this, Neil, is, you know, when you're providing context to changes or suggested changes in a, in a purchase agreement, you know, rather than saying, we're going to, we're going to redline this, we're going to cross this item out without any context that only serves to, you know, piss off the parties a little bit. But when there's an explanation and a rationale behind the, the changes that are being suggested, I think it, it helps a lot, a lot more to get a, to get a deal. In. And I think that's, that's really a key to success in most deals is, you know, what is the, what is the the common understanding or the shared goal or the, the way that we ensure everyone is aligned on, on where this thing is going. And I think that's very difficult to do if, if uh, everyone's acting in kind of a, a vacuum. So consistent communication for sure. Can we do a better job at that? In, uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, absolutely. But um, I would say consistently, it's a, it's an issue that comes up where, where we could improve upon it, let's say, in uh, in the context of some of our deals. Right. So if I hear you correctly, you're not saying that whenever something goes sideways, you're throwing the legal team under the bus. And I'm not saying that if the business issues start to, you know, tailspin that it's it's the broker's fault. So as long as we're on the same page there, then I think that's good. And obviously there's no accountant on the call right now. So, you know, we both wouldn't never throw the financial advisors under the bus, right? Okay, that's good. (laughs) So maybe just to get into, you know, uh, a little bit more of the nitty gritty. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the times when when deals didn't get over the finish line. And the kinds of things that became roadblocks or obstacles to a successful transaction. I think, you know, I think we both know that in some cases, the marriage per se was never meant to be. And maybe it just took a little bit longer for the parties to figure that out. But I think in some cases, issues do come up and maybe they're not handled as well as they could have been. Or again, the communication breaks down. So in the deals that maybe didn't get all the way, you know, what were some of the things that maybe were the obstacles? Sure. So maybe a more of a kind of a, a general comment is that in the deals that we see kind of going sideways or, or falling apart, and I guess on the other side of the coin that, you know, what lends to the success is the more we can help our clients and the buyers talk about the excitement about the future. In other words, what happens after closing rather than 
focusing on a, a normalization item from three years ago and how that affects <laughs> the, you know, the EBITDA, the more that we can help them uh, talk about the, the future of the business, um, generally speaking, the, you know, the, the, the more successful it is. And, and even in the context where that future uh, doesn't include the seller, right? Uh, if the seller is right. leaving or if they're leaving in a, you know, a short period of time or they're not, you know, they're not maintaining any equity in the business. I think to, for that seller to know that their business is being taken care of, it's going to be, you know, they're going to treat the clients well. I really like trying to focus on those conversations rather than, like I said, kind of a, a normalized, um, you know, level of EBITDA from two years ago and how that might affect valuation. Valuation in my mind is, Sure, you have to be close on on numbers, but it, be, it becomes a lot less relevant when you get both parties excited about how the business can grow uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, and like I said, I, we still see mm. that success even with owners that uh, that decide not to stay in the business. They want they want to see the legacy of what they've built continue. I think again, kind of generally, we you know we use the term here. You know, uh, if a if a shark isn't moving, it's dead, kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm. time kills a lot of deals, right? Where even when both parties are are generally content to get a deal done and to uh, and to finalize, if if there's no progress being made, uh, that tends to be a you know a fairly significant deal killer where it's just hard to rally the troops to get to get over the finish line. If you want to get kind of more uh, more technical, and you'll know this well, Neil, but on the uh, on the working capital side, I think that if I had to choose one component that killed most deals or that frustrates <laughs> uh, most buyers and sellers, it's it's defining uh, and setting and understanding how uh, working capital forms part of a transaction. And working capital, the number that you set is is essentially the a, uh, tied into the purchase price. So if a if a client and or the you know the buyer isn't fully aware of you know what the expectations are on 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 that part of the deal, um, and sometimes we wait too long uh, in the process to properly define it. But if they're not clear on what that looks like, sometimes it can um, it can kill deals or at least frustrate people um, as it gets closer to to closing the deal. So we we really like the buyers who you know if if we're close on valuation. Uh, who just say, you know what, you guys set the working capital target. We're we're happy with what you've, you know, so long as it's fair, even if it's at you know a, a number that um, is the equivalent to increasing the purchase price a couple hundred thousand bucks. I think right. in the context of the transaction, if it keeps the seller happy, I think the that leads to a better optimal outcome, especially post transaction. Yeah, I think I think all the things you mentioned there, the, the like. Uh, evaluation can be important. I think there's there's ways to get there. Time definitely kills deals. The working capital piece always always seems to come up, yeah. and I'm constantly wondering if there's a better way to educate the clients, the market, the world about what this so concept is. Yeah. It just seems to be. Um, I'm not sure if it's it's misunderstood or just applied in different ways to make it fuzzy. But um, if you had to sort of isolate why working capital becomes this juggernaut in, in the negotiation process, what do you think the, the root cause is? Yeah, I think, I think it's, I mean, you alluded to a few, I think number one, it's, you know, if you've got a million bucks in receivables, the, the seller often says, well, that's, that's the equivalent to cash that I'm leaving in the business. And, you know, why, why would I give that to you for free, uh, so to speak, as part of the purchase price? 
you know, the commentary that we try to provide back to our clients is like, well, you, you wouldn't have a purchase price and or uh, an EBITDA that translates into a purchase price without the level of working capital that is, you know, that is on an average basis within the company. Right. And so I think it's just, it's just a fundamental kind of uh, lack of understanding that if you don't have that working capital in the business, it's not the same, it's not the same business anymore. In other words, it's not the same purchase price. It shouldn't be, uh, it, it has to have a, a level of working capital consistent with past practices or consistent with averages to, for it to be the same business upon which the, the buyer is, is writing the check for. So in addition to that, it's, it, it gets further complicated because. You know, a lot of these smaller companies, maybe inventory isn't tracked on a monthly basis, or maybe there's some ARs that have been sitting in there for, you know, a couple of years. So to actually set the target, even with the data or having access to the full data is difficult because the the data might not be up to date and accurate. And, and it just lends to so many issues as you, as you alluded to. Right. Ultimately, a buyer wants to buy a business that is performing and there has to be ongoing value being driven in the business and uh, they don't want to have to dump in a ton of cash. Yeah, they're buying a going concern. Yeah, exactly. Right. Fair enough. I did want to just touch base on one other topic, if you can sure. spare a little bit more of your uh, your time. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of just your role in supporting the client, I would imagine that, you know, all clients come in different sizes and shapes and, and you tend to work with uh, sophisticated, larger corporations. So often they'll have uh, professionals that are ready to speak to the business and present. But I'd imagine in some cases, you know, Welch and you will take a more active front-footed role in in negotiating with a potential buyer or navigating issues. And in some cases, you may take more of a supporting role. And, I, you know, I'm just kind of curious to hear from you, like, how do you make that determination? How do you know, you know, which client is which? And um, how do you gauge that? Yeah, it's very rare that um, our sales cycle, for example, is very long, right? We don't, we don't get hired uh, after having talked to a prospect for a week, right? It's a, it's a big right. decision that a client is, is making. So in, in, that, in that context, the relationship that we've built with, with our clients once they do sign is actually fairly significant as of day one. There's a number of pitches and all that kind of stuff that uh, a lot of upfront work that happens before we uh, before we sign. So we tend to get a good feel for their level of comfort in negotiations, their their skill set, the time that they have to to do it. But I would say it, it varies significantly and with every client. And and kind of to your point, you know, the you know our our role is largely as a as a financial advisor as a deal advisor but i would say 90% of the work that we're doing is emotional right where it's how do we provide comfort to the buyer and seller that you know that the the deal is fair and that the information that we're giving is uh is up to date and and accurate deals die like i said not because of the valuation in most contexts it's the the lack of trust that creeps in if um the buyer just feels like they're not getting the information that that is required so and kind of going back to the original question you asked in terms of you know what what's our role again that is the reason why it's so difficult to answer what we exactly do because mm-hmm. it really depends on the client some clients are completely hands off so you you deal with it i don't want to have any conversations i need to run this business and keep the value up and other clients want to be part of uh, the conversations and and even kind of in the the nitty-gritty of due diligence too so it really depends on on the client and uh, and the relationship that we built with them in the lead up and throughout the deal process. Right. Makes sense. And and there's a lot of hats that you wear. 
and uh, and you wear them very well. And I appreciate your time today in joining me and chatting a little bit about your space. So, Cody, thank you so much for joining. I look forward to continuing to chat with you and, and working with you. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Neil. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me, Neil Schwartz, for this episode of The Manner of Speaking. For more information on our business law practice or our other practice areas, visit our website, manlawyers.com, or follow us on Instagram or Twitter, at manlawyers.com.